Der Triathlon Show 352. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I have a bit of a different episode for you. I was recently invited to the Oxidative Potential podcast as a guest and I had a very nice chat with Matthew DeRoche who is one of the hosts of the podcast and uh, Matthew kindly agreed that I could republish the interview here on that triathlon show. Uh, So that's what we have in store for today. You should definitely go and check out the Oxidative Potential podcast. I'll put all the links in the show notes and episode description. Uh, It's got uh, a fantastic list of topics and guests, many of whom will be familiar to you from previous episodes here on that triathlon show as well but uh, in this conversation we discuss a wide variety of topics uh, with Matthew and myself spanning training and coaching exercise physiology and technology so hopefully there is something for everyone in there but before we get into that a big thanks to our sponsors first we have Roka Roka produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses if you want to go faster in the water or on the bike, a Roka wetsuit or tri-suit might be for you. Or if you just want to have a more comfortable, functional and stylish pair of eyeglasses, then look to their range of eyewear. Uh, today, I want to revisit Roka's tri-suit, the Gen 2 Elite Aero model. This is a suit developed and perfected based on both wind tunnel and real-world testing on the road and in the water, importantly. Uh, it is designed to provide the optimal balance of aerodynamics, function and comfort from sprint to full iron distance triathlons and just like the Roka wetsuits it comes with arms up technology for maximal mobility when swimming and I can tell you from trying a large number of wetsuits uh, or trisuits sorry it you will really feel it it won't constrain you uh, your swimming even a little bit uh, that's what that, that's what it feels like how good it feels to be swimming in this trisuit whereas a lot of other trisuits especially the ones that are uh, focused a lot on aerodynamics will constrain your shoulder mobility a bit visit roca.com forward slash tts to get 20 percent off your entire order and thank you to Zenate. the Zenate indoor swim trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique through an early catch maximize propulsion through a more powerful stroke and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home even when you can't go to the pool it is available in the uk eu and us with free shipping in both the uk and the us it is very affordable similar to a pair of running shoes and best of all the investment is risk-free if you're not in love with the senate trainer after two weeks using it and using their free, their free program you can send it back and get a full refund learn more and get a 20 percent discount on your swim trainer on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash tts now without any further ado here's myself and matthew derose from the oxidative potential podcast You know, I, I actually really like doing podcasts with people that have had their own podcast or have their own podcast because you get a feel for the individual of, you know, what are some things that you're really interested to hear them in? Like sometimes when you just, you, you hear of someone or you maybe read an article, it's hard to try and extract what you actually want to understand from what that person has to offer. But like a person like yourself and others, like I've listened to, it would hundreds of hours, right? So you get an idea of some of the areas that this person kind of maybe diverges from a path. 
or maybe resides on a certain path that you're interested in. Um, so that's, that's, that's why I'm excited to talk to you today because, uh, you know, you have a, you have a great podcast, honestly, like, especially the fact that you have the mixture of coaching and researchers, which I'm trying to do, but it's, it's hard. Um, so yeah, so very happy to have you on today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, it's true. It is hard. I also fi- find that to be to be the case, especially. And I don't. I'm curious to hear what you think. But for me, the hard part is often fi- finding you know really good quality coaches because there's always there's always somebody else starting a new PhD. So there's always going to be researchers. But I think I find that the getting really good coaches into that's the the more difficult part. Actually, you're actually right on the money with that because lately I've been like you know, sifting through books and, and sifting through articles. I'm like trying to find coaches in the field that are like really kind of on the edge where I'm interested in. They have a decent understanding of physiology, a really good coaching prowess, and also have, you know, interest in, in some of the things that you like to talk about. But one of the things I've noticed over the years is a lot of coaches, they kind of dig in and I can understand this being the case, uh, time constraints, um, things of this nature where they just kind of, they create their system and that system stays until the day they die. Right. Like that's the system. The yeah. system is a system, yeah. whether it's a university coach, whether it's a, um, and they get really good at maybe some of the actual coaching practice itself of coaching an individual. Um, but on the physiology side, and there's arguments to be made on both sides of why those have pros and cons, but, um, yeah, no, it, it's funny that you say that. Um, let's actually start with a little bit of a, an introduction, because I mean, people that have come from your podcast probably might not even have heard your introduction into coaching and how did you get to the point where you're at now? So maybe start with, um, cause I know y- your background is engineering. Um, mm-hmm. but how did, how did this kind of wind up as, as what you wanted to hone in on? Yeah, um, I guess I got into endurance sports. I did my first marathon when I was 17, but but my main sport was football growing up, uh, European football, so soccer. Mm. And um, but then as I started university, I I stopped playing uh, playing football and and I just started running. I guess recreationally, having already done that one marathon, and and then it turned into something that I would do. I would sign up for a marathon, I would train for a few months, and then I would take a break, and then I would do the same cycle again. Mm. And usually I would get a bit faster every time. Uh, definitely wasn't a speedster uh, mm. starting out. But um, yeah, I, I got to the point where where I got more and more into the the pursuit of, of getting faster and, and started reading a lot. Um, I think Jack Daniels or Pete Fitzinger were the two first r- running books and endurance sports books really that I devoured and then I just branched out from there and, and got pretty into the whole running thing and and started with a little bit of coaching there as well just a few you know friends and family and mm. uh, that kind of thing and then uh, I got injured uh, from for my own running and uh, and started taking up cycling and swimming as cross training I had always had in the back of my mind that at some point in my life, I would start doing triathlon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, then that was a natural thing to do as cross training for now and and do a couple of triathlons without really training the run at all, because I, I really couldn't. I was in a lot of pain when I was running. So I did that. And then when I eventually was able to run again without any issues, which took quite a while, I was I was really hooked on the whole 
triathlon thing, training for three different sports was just so fun. And, and it's opened up a whole new uh, world of challenges and which, which I found uh, a good thing about the sport, like more things to think about and, and challenges to overcome. So, so I guess I then just uh, kept learning about endurance sports the way I had been doing in running, but, uh, but uh, in the triathlon space and, and from there, it didn't take me too long in, in triathlon until I started coaching, but again, very small scale at first and just, um, yeah, people that, uh, not weren't very, you know, at that point, very, um, very fast or professional or anything, just regular age groupers and just a, a handful of them, mm. uh, basically. And, and I did that alongside, um, I was graduating university at the time that I got that injury or I had just graduated and, and was working, uh, in engineering in medical engineering mm-hmm. and um and yeah that's that's where I, I started coaching alongside that just as a bit of a side gig mm-hmm. but then eventually i decided that uh i really really liked it i was really passionate about it and and i wanted to get better at coaching and i wanted to focus on it and i i, w- I wanted to do it full-time if i could mm-hmm. but i realized that the only way that i could uh, give myself a chance of doing that was to quit my normal job so take a, a bit of a leap of faith and so that's what i did and that was in 2017 so five years ago now that i started coaching full-time and and at that same time is when i started the, the podcast at triathlon show as well that's interesting and it's funny like sometimes the way i think of coaching is you know when you when you start coaching obviously it's never optimal like you're not necessarily prepared for the task at hand, but it's, it almost works the best because when you're working with athletes that have a large potential to grow, it's hard to screw things up, right? Whereas you get better and better as a coach, you start to coach more elite athletes and it's, it's obviously much easier to screw up an elite athlete than it is to make them better. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I would I would say that you can still screw things up really well yes. with with you know <laughs> yeah. non non-elites, but yes. but it's it's also it's much easier to find the gains. It's uh, exactly like, uh, com- completely different. Yeah. Yes. No, you're 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 exactly right on that. Like you, there's definitely some situations with overreaching, overtraining, and and also not understanding proper load and and understanding stress and different things surrounding that that can be weak points for sure. It's interesting that you you started with running now. When you got into triathlon, like as as a whole, what were some of the things that you noticed in in the scene? Like, did you notice there was because when we go into the individual sports themselves, whether it's running, cycling, like I look at cycling as kind of where people hold physiology to a much higher degree of of importance. They hold metrics to a much higher degree of importance. What were some of the things compared to running? What were some of the things that you noticed in triathlon that was kind of different in the culture itself? Because it might seem like it's the same culture as everything, but it it inherently, from what I've noticed, is a little bit different than some of these other sports. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that assessment when you compare cycling and running and, and say that the exact same thing applies mm-hmm. to, to triathletes generally, like a, a large focus on metrics and and data and uh so yeah that, that that's the main thing that i would say um mm-hmm. what else like uh, it's hard to say because it also varies a lot from country to country but mm-hmm. like in finland it would be quite different to portugal 
for example, uh, so Portugal is where I live now and Finland is where I lived when, when I was still working as an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Finland, you have a very dominant uh, triathlon scene, triathlon scene that is very dominated by age groupers, uh, a lot okay. of them uh, 30 years and over. Whereas in Portugal, you have much more of a, you have a lot of youth doing triathlon. You have people starting doing triathlon when they're seven or eight years old and, and you don't see that in Finland. So it, it by definition, I think gives a completely different spin on the on the whole culture thing because people have grown up with triathlon when they didn't have any clue what a what is or what pace is. They're just out riding mm-hmm. their bikes and and running and and swimming. So so I think maybe there's a bit which I think can be a good thing because I think sometimes there is too much of an emphasis on on the metrics and the data mm-hmm. in among age groupers in particular, I, I would say. So um but are there other things that are different? Um, well, I think triathletes have a lot of things going for them as well. Like they are very meticulous. They are good at preparing things. They, uh, which they, they really <laughs> take their, their sport seriously. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good thing if you want to, if your goal is performance. So they're always looking for ways to get faster. And sometimes that backfires. Uh, but, but, uh, but I, I think that the, the sentiment is correct. And, mm. And and people are willing to experiment. I think, yeah, as long as you channel the this culture and the uh, the typical uh, triathlete mindset correctly, I think it's it's a good one. But yeah, sometimes it backfires, but you just have to channel it correctly. I would say mm. that that does make a lot of sense. Like inherently, when you think of the demands of triathlon, your training has to be much more organized even if you want to participate at a lower level um compared to something like just running or cycling you just hop on the bike and go doesn't really matter but when you are training for a triathlon there is um you know there's different considerations about how you're stacking workouts and and just having things ready in place and organized so you can whether it's meet the timing um, for the open pool workout or whatever at the master's swim group, um, you know, meeting the, everything is just kind of more, um, under a condensed time frame, So it inherently requires more focus and detail, um, than maybe just, just grabbing your shoes and, and hopping on for a run. So I have some questions here that, that I sent over and I'm excited to get into them because, um, the first one in particular was surrounding power duration modeling. Um, Because I think everyone, whenever we're talking about not necessarily running as much, but with cycling in particular and triathlon, um, you know, power duration modeling of some sort is is kind of somewhere in the scheme for people. Um, So some of the people that you've had on the podcast before, like Bjorn Kafka and um, and Sebastian Weber, um, so they offer some of these products for, you know, for athletes to go and try and understand, um, Hey, there's, there's more to just power duration modeling than critical power. Um, what do you see the big use for these types of analytical softwares? Do you see them as replacements for physiology testing? Do you think they're just more practical, um, more feasible? Do you, do you think that, um, they can be used uh, on a regular basis to kind of help understand changes and responses to training. What, what's your whole kind of idea surrounding these things? Do you use them anymore? Do you use just basic critical power? What are, what are some of the things that you, you think? Yes. Yeah. 
So, so maybe just a little bit of an intro for listeners that are not familiar. So, the this concept, uh, the the model, if you will, comes from uh, the 80s in Germany by uh, Alois Mader was the one who developed mm. it primarily, and and it constitutes um, how VO2 max, your maximum aerobic capacity, and uh, VLA max, uh, your maximum glycolytic capacity, basically act as control switches or not switches but knobs that that then inter their interaction determines things like your maximum lactate steady state and and uh, and that is of course something that we have known for a long time is critical for endurance performance so so basically uh the idea is that you can if you know things like your vo2 max and your vla max you can then figure out exactly what is your mlss and and also things like fat oxidation at certain intensities and and so on uh, you can basically simulate your whole physiology based on a couple of uh of uh capacity parameters mm-hmm. um i i have used both inside and air tune in the past and uh i'm not doing it anymore i, I stopped somewhere around uh last year in the spring i believe for various reasons um there's actually some very new well actually it's not it's it's not peer reviewed yet. Yes, it's a preprint. By, but mm. Simon Nolte just recently published something on that where he looked at all of the studies that have been done so far, uh, trying to validate the model with uh, with actual athletes. And uh, and what he basically concluded is that for running, it the model clearly does not seem to work uh, in its current state. And for cycling, it's a little bit less damning, but it's not necessarily recommended either it's not um mm. clear that it's definitely working mm. either so so there are some i think i think that some of the issues that they point out in, include things like well when you're measuring your v vla max for example you're measuring uh capillary lactate concentration but the model uh, talks about the lactate concentration in the in the muscle not in the in the bloodstream mm-hmm. so so the measurement, the measurements are not exactly the ones that you would need to do to actually be able to use the model. And then in, in addition to that, there are some certain assumptions, including some parameters that have not necessarily been validated to be the same for everybody. And there might be individual variations there and so on. Uh, so, so, so long story short, uh, I did use them. Um, but to be honest, the main reason that I stopped using it was that the athletes that I did that sort of testing with and that sort of analysis with uh, versus the athletes that I didn't do it with, in the end, once I got enough of a sample size, I didn't find that it uh, helped me coach them better or helped me get better results. So then I stopped. Like, I don't want to do anything if it doesn't bring additional value. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it took me some time to to realize that, but uh, but um, but that's what I found when I when I analyzed analyzed the results. But I do use critical power and power duration modeling, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that that I use a lot, and uh, and and I think that that has value. Um, but but it's also very simple to do. Uh, you can do it without uh, without going into a lab. Well, actually, with the software as you mentioned, you can do it without going into a lab as well. So that's a strength of theirs. But mm-hmm. um, still, critical power compared to going into a laboratory is very. It's very good that you you don't pay anything for it and mm-hmm. and you don't pay time either to you know travel to a laboratory or or at least maybe take a few hours off of your day to to go and do that. So so I do use that. Was there another part of the question that I missed? No, no that that 
you know, that hits on everything on, on where you stand with that, which was interesting hearing because I, I inherently really like the way that you think because it's, does this help me do my job better or not? You know, and I think sometimes even with physiological testing, um, it's, it's really, it can make things easier, but it can also make things harder in some ways. And you have to be honest, especially with certain athletes, when it's appropriate to use certain things. That's what I've noticed over the years um, is, you know, does if someone's just getting into the sport or has been in the sport for two years, should we really be honing in on some of the things that we're honing in on? Y yes, maybe, maybe not. Um, but realistically, if it, if it helps you do your job better, then by all means. Um, but the hard part is that that heuristic with many coaches is because it's a model that they're using, the model that they're familiar with, they they kind of gravitate and say, yes, you know, the bias is there where it is helping me because it's metrics, it's pretty, it's it's this or it's that. Um, but yeah, that is interesting. And I can I can totally understand that because you're very data driven in your decision making, essentially. Like obviously you're taking in the human factors as well but you are kind of checking the boxes and does this meet the requirements to help me do my job better? So I thought, I thought that was a really good answer. Um, yeah. yeah. Another thing I'm interested to hear, because this kind of springs off of this now is how do you monitor response to training intervention? So when you're working with an athlete and you're prescribing specific type of, whether it's training blocks or, a specific theme of training, whether it's conjugate periodized training, um, block periodization. Um, how are you monitoring their response to that? Is there hard and fast rules that you use as red flags um, for everyone? Is it more of a case-by-case -case basis? Um, do you monitor HRV, like rolling HRV? Do you monitor, um, I'm, I'm sure you monitor the comments and, and RP and things like that, but what are your big kind of pillars for making decisions on training intervention and training response? Yeah, so uh, there's a, a lot of variables that go into it, but um, the most important ones are, well, first of all, uh, well, not first of all necessarily, but uh, I look at the objective performance data, of course, from workouts and tests. And very often in a training block, we have a, you know, we're trying to work on a, uh, on maybe bridging some gaps in the athlete's performance. So maybe they need to be able to bike at a certain power in their next race. And we're trying to get the power up. We're doing some specific workouts and we're seeing that they can hold a higher power or they can extend their power for a longer duration. So, so it's very clear and objective that they are improving. So it doesn't have to be a formal test, but uh, mm -hmm. all that objective data from training is important and depending on what the focus of a training block is then um, obviously that influences what the specific data that i look at the most will be mm -hmm. but then uh, alongside that of course um conversations with the athletes and so about how they how they, how they perceive that they are feeling uh, that they're improving in general and they're feeling in the workouts and that they are how they feel they're performing in the workouts uh, that's very critical and and the workout comments and and rpe as well uh going in that category of uh subjective feedback um mm. that's yeah that's just as important and, and in terms of red flags for example when to pull back i, I think it's usually the 
the comments, whether it's or the the discussions face to face, that the those are the two main ones where where those red flags tend to come up. Sure, it could be like a workout that goes really badly, mm-hmm. but unless the comment or the discussion after um you know um indicate that something is up it could have just been a bad day and we don't necessarily need to take any action on that but mm-hmm. if they feel if if they say something more in 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 a more negative me- more negative co- uh, tone so that oh i'm really struggling right now work is really tough right now and i just don't feel like I had any chance of hitting those numbers mm-hmm. that's uh that's the kind of comment that would uh we would probably generate some uh some changes in the in the training for uh for the next few days anyway um and uh yeah what else heart rate variability hrv i did use it quite a lot for some time mm-hmm. uh to be honest right now i don't really use it uh, for example i don't i stopped measuring it personally and mm-hmm. i never required my athletes to to measure it although i did encourage it and i did monitor it mm-hmm. um now yeah some of my athletes still still do measure it but i'm less interested in it right now mm-hmm. to be completely honest uh i yeah there are many reasons for it but but i think that it's maybe a bit overhyped uh mm-hmm. being completely blunt uh because it's it's measuring the or the state of the autonomic nervous system the balance between mm-hmm sympathetic and parasympathetic um the parasympathetic sympathetic balance but there's so much more that uh, could go wrong in the body if we're looking for red flags than than that particular balance so Mm -hmm. so i find that not everything that not every red flag will pop up as as hrv and that's that's the kind of thing that i've seen a little bit that some athletes or coaches get a little bit too secure in that if hrv is good then everything is good and that's something that i don't think is the case and i see the opposite to be true so mm-hmm. so that's that's the reason that i'm not really using it anymore and and the other reason i guess is that i've seen that especially in very well-trained athletes and most of the athletes that i work with these days are really really well trained uh, uh so then hrv is just extremely stable most of the time sure mm-hmm. if you get really sick then it's then it then you can see changes to it but but you don't really see any changes beyond the smallest worthwhile change in in most training blocks necessarily so it doesn't really help you one way or or, or another i don't think no i think that's good there's a couple things in there um one i know you've had john kiley on your podcast um i'm a huge fan of john's work and what you noted was you you pay attention on the athlete's perception of their training not just the inherent response and and what they felt but their perception of how the training is going how the training is and i think that's a big thing because for example there's there's plenty of athletes um that could definitely improve from some of the training interventions that are out there but their perceptions of those training interventions will inherently decrease a lot of the positive adaptations that they could yield from that because of the stress of undertaking something that they do not believe in. Um, it's yeah. the same as forcing someone to, you know, exercise the inherent response to that is going to be different than if they're engaging that for, you know, certain intrinsic motivations. Um, that that just creates a completely different neurological environment, physiological environment, um, 
just because of the endocrine responses and anyways that that was good that that i, re I really enjoyed hearing you speak on that because i don't a lot of coaches will say rpe but they don't really talk about how does the athlete perceive what they're doing um do they perceive it as a waste of time do they perceive it as maybe not benefiting them um all those things really really do matter another thing like uh, i've been very deep into hrv at this point um there's just so much misconception around HRV and there's so much nuance to accurately recording HRV. I think that a lot of it is lost, whether it's these scores that these algorithms and softwares are spitting out. Um, that That's a big problem. Also, the way in that they're measuring um, sporadically through the night on a, a time basis versus at you know specific stages of the sleep cycle. Or if they're doing morning HRV measures, you know, how consistent and what are they using? It's there, there's so many variables that go into play of how clean is that data? How accurate is that data? Because if we're looking at something very sensitive, the ability for those sensitive measures to be thrown off by various things. Um, and yes, we are seeing, if you're looking at some of these longer trends, it, it, it kind of cleans out a lot of that noise. But inherently, too, I think a lot of the way people use HRV, I don't know if it's necessarily the most optimal. Because if you look at the research on how HRV is used in medicine versus how it's being prescribed in training, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if this is the most optimal way to be using it, like especially go or no go. Yes, it, it, that can be, I think, somewhat useful maybe if you're doing large uh, training sessions or maybe very intense training sessions. But um, yeah, I just think that, you know, one way that I've been using it now and I found kind of some value in this is measuring um, pre, intra and post, several post um, HRV measures um, and seeing the different responses to different modalities and also different intensities. And I found that to actually be quite useful so far. Um, and how, how do you, how do you use that? Well, what, how does it then benefit the, uh, the, the next or the planning that you do? So I haven't used this with other athletes yet, but what I'm, okay. what I'm seeing is my responses to certain types of intensities are different than what I thought. And I think what I'm going to see is that there's going to be some different responses depending on the type of intensities that you're hitting between individuals. And that's something I think we've always kind of knew. And I think Phil Bellinger has done a good job at putting some of his research forth and saying, hey, depending on some of even just muscle fiber typology, you're going to see some different response times. You're going to see some different onsets of overreaching right but also i think there's a whole nether level to that which i don't think we'll be able to even understand for years is is neurological response to different types of training um i think just inherently we don't have very good tools to measure that obviously and we won't for a very long time and i don't think that'll ever be in the future but i think there's other factors that are in play with response to um exercise yeah, I, I like that answer, and and everything is very well explained so far. So, yeah, can, um, I, can I say one thing on the on the HRV? Yeah. One more thing that it's just 
a bit of an issue that I had with the with the studies that have been done in HRV guided mm-hmm. training. So the yeah. idea of a go go slash no go decision based on or reduce intensity decision based on on your HRV score yeah. in the morning or your HRV baseline, uh, depending on how the study is set up. But mm-hmm. the the issue that I have is that uh, you can't blind the participants to what they're doing. They mm-hmm. uh, or at, at least from my memory, that's not what, what has been done. Maybe, maybe it has been no, done in some correct. of the studies. I haven't read them all, but but yeah. I think it's hard to do. And in most, m- many of the studies anyway, they haven't done that. So then the HRV-guided group, they know that they are training according to, that they are changing their training based on the HRV scores. And that mm-hmm. could inherently uh, induce a placebo effect, which mm-hmm. is why there has seemed to be a small positive effect of HRV-guided training over um non-HV-guided training. Uh, so I'm it, it, I'm not saying that it's all placebo. That's not yeah. what I'm saying at all. But I think it's, an, it's a methodological methodological issue with the studies. And, and it's something that you see when athletes are very religiously measure HRV that then if they have a low score one day, which might just be a measurement error, then mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of, um, it puts them off uh, training, even trying to do what was prescribed when they could maybe potentially have had a perfectly fine workout so, yeah. so that's that's something that i've been thinking about and why i'm less into it than i than i used to no i i 110 agree with you and i discourage certain types of individuals to not use hrv um especially like that type three under the braverman where they're very kind of um you know the gaba deficient essentially but uh, anyways not going to go into that but they're very meticulous about their data and I think that some of these scores, and I, I do believe HRV has a placebo effect, even just the attention surrounding your your recovery and, and just the, the novelty of such a measure is kind of exciting for people. And I do think that, I, I definitely think there's a placebo effect with that. Um, but also, um, I, I do think some people have in, in the past like that i've seen have responded poorly to hrv because they can't separate themselves from the measure um no matter how much you tell them that hey you know yeah. the, the 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 error of your measurement also this is probably what you're going to see after a poor night's sleep or whatever and it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to perform any better or lose adaptation if we're seeing it in several, anyways, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that's that's an that's a very honest statement as as well. Um, and you're and and you're right. I, they haven't been able to blind, so it's it's true. Um, one thing I'm interested to hear is is what are some things that you're currently excited about surrounding whether it's testing, training, or coaching, um, because. One statement that I've heard you say in a podcast before, which I found really useful and I've implemented it into my own practice is um, take more time and more effort into making a decision on something that you're using, Um, whether it's, you know, a new training um, style or whether it's a new kind of intervention that you're playing around with or a certain type of test take the time, even if it's going poorly for a bit, just take a little bit more time to make your decision. Don't jump onto the next thing. I think everyone, especially now with the amount of information that they're taking in, it's very hard to separate themselves from seeing what someone else is doing and not wanting to try what someone else is doing. But um, 
we all have our weaknesses and and trying to utilize something and give something um the best possible chance so what what are some of the things that you're currently playing around with or excited to to try and understand more about um doesn't have to be a technology it could be a modality it could be a, a whatever a concept yeah so the the thing that i'm the most excited about right now is uh swim training uh in particular in a triathlon context uh so basically uh, the concept of and this is actually not somebody that i've although i'm by no means the first one to have done this or come up with this but it's not something that any particular person or uh, anything like that has inspired me to do it's it's something that has kind of grown gr- grown organically in me so to say and, and now i'm testing it out with uh, with myself especially but also with some of my athletes and 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 it is about training swimming more like you would the run and the bike component because we have a very strong influence from traditional swim training in triathlon swimming as well meaning you do sets with lots of what i would call bells and whistles and maybe in, in a not so positive connotation here uh basically a lot of a lot of stuff is there's a lot of things going on quite a lot in in very in many swim sets a lot lots of different drills you don't always necessarily know why you're doing the drills lots of different uh tons of different intervals of different speeds and you just mix and match uh and and you get something that takes a whole whiteboard to uh to write down and mm. and nobody can be expected to remember it if they go to, go to the pools so so what I'm really thinking is the case with swimming. And this is, well, I should caveat this by saying that swimming is an extremely technical sport and developing the, your swim technique is always going to be top priority uh, for athletes if they want to swim swim well. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of athletes that have a decent technique, not you know a world-class technique, but, th- but they are not necessarily held back by their technique. There's only so much that improved technique can do for them uh right now or at least the improved technique that they can realistically hope to achieve with their time available for training and not just swim training but dry land mobility and so on and and their anatomy and and their current mobility and so on so so i think a lot of athletes are uh that have a decent technique are held back not by technique but by uh training methods and Mm -hmm. uh and that's where yeah because i think that as triathletes, triathlon coaches, we 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 do have a very strong influence of copying what pool swimmers are doing and just trying to do that ourselves. But we have mm-hmm. a lot less time to swim. We're a lot uh, not as good as as they are by far, and so on. So so when I say training swimming more like you train the bike and the run, uh, a few of the things that that are included in that is first of all doing more just long, easy endurance swimming. Uh, that's important, and because often you see. Uh, athletes doing an quote-unquote endurance swim but they do 30 times 100 and maybe in half of those 100s they have a build because it makes it more fun and engaging so a build like an acceleration mm-hmm. in the second 50 meters something like that so so actually you you swim for an hour uh, sorry a minute 20 and then you break for 10 15 seconds and you swim for a minute 20 or a minute 30 or a minute 40 or whatever it is again and you take a short break and then you keep swimming but you wouldn't do a bike workout like that or a run workout like that if the goal is just the aerobic endurance component so i'm i'm experimenting with things like 10 times 400 uh, 8 times 600 uh, 5 times 800 those sorts of sets very boring but 
Uh, it is an endurance sport. Endurance sport is, is a bit monotonous, and uh, you have to learn to enjoy the monotony. Uh, I think, and uh, so so that's one aspect of it. Uh, a second aspect is I think we're often doing the intense swim swimming uh, at way too high intensities. So I've actually started doing a little bit of lactate testing in the pool, and um, mm-hmm. this is still early days, so so I'm not necessarily using that uh, for prescribe intensities but but you can do it even without without lactate testing that's just a curiosity for me really uh, but for example a typical swim set might be 15 times 100 uh, mm-hmm. at quote-unquote threshold with 15 seconds break so in duration terms that would again be something like 15 times 1 minute 20 or maybe you do 20 times 1 minute 20 or 1 minute 40 or 1 minute 50 depending on how fast you are and then you rest quite often very short rests. Let's say 15 seconds would be quite common for 15 times 100. And if you swim in, let's say, a minute four, 30, that means that your work to rest ratio is something like it's six to one, uh, if I do my math right, which is, uh, which is quite very high mm-hmm. compared to what you would typically do for a threshold workout on the bike and the run where it might be more like two to one it would be quite common or three to one or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. So, so I'm trying to do sets that are, first of all, longer intervals so that you don't swim them way too hard because that's the other thing that happens. You swim them, you basically do that as 15 times 100 as hard as you can. And this happens especially if you swim with a group. And mm-hmm. I do think that there are, there's a lot of value in group swimming in, in the right amount and in the right group and for the right athlete. But, mm-hmm. but there are also a lot of caveats and a lot of uh, potential disadvantages that you need to navigate. So, so we end up swimming that 15 times 100 basically as an all out set. So it becomes more like a uh, VO2 max workout almost, but with very short recoveries. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then a lot of athletes find themselves really tired for the entire rest of the day. And, and, uh, no, no wonder because you just did an extremely hard workout with a lot of anaerobic energy contribution. And, and, uh, yeah, it was basically a time trial. <laughs> and uh, so, so the way I would rewrite that threshold workout would be to do more total work. Do longer intervals so that it's uh, more difficult for the athlete to to go too hard, but also mm-hmm. having the pace prescription be be correct from the start. So that would be, let's say, we could prescribe the workout as twelve times two hundred. So we're increasing from fifteen hundred meters to two thousand four hundred meters of total work. We're also increasing the rest so that to let's say forty five seconds or something. So to make it a bit more appropriate, or even one minute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still short compared to the work to rest ratio of cycling and running. And, and pr- probably that's just because I still have that bias of knowing what typical swim workouts still look like. So I don't have yeah. the courage to go extreme on, well, what, what is perceived as extreme on the rests. Yeah. Um, but, but in terms of pacing there, um, I would say that, well, your threshold is something that you could hold for, let's say 30 minutes in a time trial. So, so actually I've had. At least one athlete so far do a 1900 meter time trial which is a good distance to do a time trial for because it's also the uh, the, the 7.3 swim distance so so if you're training mm-hmm. for that distance then then it's a good one but it also for a lot of athletes it takes in the region of 25 to 30 minutes if they're a relatively quick swimmer and uh so so you get that you can use that as basically your your threshold if you want to and then prescribe training accordingly so this is something that i'm really excited about uh, as you can probably tell because i talked about that for a long time I really enjoyed hearing that because I was just speaking with um, Jason Coop actually yesterday. And one of the things I really enjoyed about his book was, you know, some of the 
philosophies and theories around training and structuring training um, never really made sense to me. But when people start pulling them apart and testing them and saying, hey, if physiology works this way for this thing, why would it work different for this other thing that we're doing that it's we're trying to gain the same adaptations for? Um, so I think it's really cool that you're, you're, you're playing around with that. And I think especially with swimming, I'm sure you're aware that the culture is very, very ingrained with the, the like the training is a very sacredly held kind of, um, you know, totem there. So it's whenever you start veering off the path, it definitely feels like there's something inherently wrong with what you're doing. But from what you said and the reasons why you're doing it, it makes uh, sense, right? So I think stuff like that as a coach is where coaches really hold a lot of value after some years of getting confidence to be able to say, hey, I'm going to pull this string because I can't see any physiological reason why this wouldn't make sense. Um, let's just test it out and see how it does. Because um, I think inherently you're going to get athletes that are just going to respond better to pretty much any type of variation, right? Because not every athlete is going to respond um, the same to the, to the given stimulus that is kind of proposed as the workout. Um, so yeah. slightly changing those in one direction, you'll, you're probably just going to see some better responses from people, I would, I would guess. Um, but also when it kind of runs in line with what the physiology is saying, I would guess that uh, that would also add another layer where it's like, ah, we're probably going to see a, a good response from that. Um, but it's interesting. I, I, I think that's a really um, smart tweak um, to, to play around with. Um, so yeah. Um, what, one thing, one thing that I want to add for the listeners benefit, if they're curious about this is with, with the longer endurance reps that I talked about, the, let's say, um, four times, four or five times, 800 or five times 600 or whatever. The reason that I do that is not just because they're long. So they're more endurance like than stopping every 100 meters, mm -hmm. but it's to force uh, the athlete to swim slower, because if you mm -hmm. have that workout, I know that, okay, I need to, and you also, in those uh, intervals, uh, the the rest is basically just a mental rest. It's 20 to 30 seconds because mm -hmm. in a ride, you wouldn't stop unless you had to, or in a run, you wouldn't stop unless you had to. So mm -hmm. it's basically the same concept there in swimming. So so the reason to to prescribe those long, uh, long duration intervals is that, well, then it forces you to swim at the right low intensity because that's what I feel is another issue with the typical the endurance swims that we quite often see that people just swim those way too hard. So mm -hmm. all the swimming ends up being very hard. And I think that it works with some, it works really well for some people because basically they are the, the creme de la creme of the best swimmers and also the most tolerant to training mm -hmm. load. And then it works really well. But for a lot of people, it just is too much and then they don't adapt or more worse, they, they start to maladapt. So, uh, so that's, uh, that was the rationale behind those longer endurance intervals. I like that. I like that. And it's funny because, you know, in certain cultures, there is a lot of physiology tied to certain things, whether it's lactate testing, like you were talking about experimenting with just recently. Like we know in Germany, that's where a lot of the lactate research, whether it's Ulbricht or, or Mater. Um, but when we, when I think about swimming in North America, there's a lot less of that, you know, 
okay, where is your actual threshold here? You know, where is your second threshold? Where is your first threshold? Does how much do these things um, matter when we're trying to organize training? I hear much less of that around swimming. Swimming is kind of similar to track where it's like paces. We got to hit our paces. We got to hit our paces. Um, so, but, but there's also to, to defend the swimming coaches, there's less reason to care about those things in swimming where most events are so short. So, okay, the 1500 is a long event, but all the other events last just a few minutes or or less than a minute. So, so then what your first threshold is definitely doesn't really matter unless Mm -hmm. again it's the 1500 uh, or uh, something, then maybe it matters a little bit, but, uh, but probably not that much. Uh, But in, in marathon swimming, obviously it it does start, uh, it does matter, but, but, but there is a reason that it's not uh, really as i think that that's that's a reason that that you don't really need to care about it as much as a swimming coach but as triathletes we swim for much longer and we need to bike and run after that so yeah. so we should be aware of these things and take them into account yeah and that and that brings up something in my head whereas like inherently with triathlon training the first threshold for modalities i think does take a larger precedence than in most sports because generally with triathlon the training volume is inherently going to be much higher um so intensity starts to the importance of intensity starts to amplify as training volume increases that threshold and where how much training you're doing around that threshold or above that threshold first and second threshold does state does start to take a larger impact i think um but you're yeah. you're, you're inherently right with you know with as a swimming coach it's the same as like kind of like an 800 meter runner 1500 meter runner um the specific threshold doesn't matter as much um obviously because there's a lot of things going on in the training outside of just building um aerobic capacity that is important and the training volume is so low um that it there's more room there for for variance uh, around that those lower paces um one one thing that i'm interested to hear because you have so many interesting individuals on your podcasts investigating interesting topics surrounding um exercise physiology what are some areas of exercise physiology that you're interested currently in or trying to understand better um it could be anything from cardiac response or cardiovascular system it could be respiratory it could be Maybe it's nothing really to do in that. Maybe it's something surrounding durability. Um, it doesn't have to be something physiological or um, it could be more um, training orientated or or anything. Yeah. Well, right now, uh, it's really the fundamentals of how the human body works in, in an exercise context. So I'm going through the, the book of George Brooks, uh, Exercise Physiology. Uh, from so basically, I'm just reading it from cover to cover. So, yeah, uh, yeah I want to just um, get a reminder of some of these things that I and and obviously learn a lot of new things along the way as well. But basically, um, yeah, improving my knowledge of the fundamentals. So there are a lot of um, you know cell biology going on at the moment, and well, not cell biology necessarily, but uh, yeah, the, how the cell works during exercise and the uh, going through the energy systems and all of that. So. So, so it's a very, yeah, right now my interest is the fundamentals. He will go into things like, yeah, the uh, cardiovascular system and, and all of that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm interested in all of, in all of that, but uh, 
learn the fundamentals because I think that that will help me then uh, better understand some of the research that I'm reading that is more complex, shall we say, or mm -hmm. maybe just more complex because I don't have that particular knowledge. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I think it will help with. I mean, obviously, it will help with understanding training in general, but but in particular, it's for understanding certain research that I might not fully grasp otherwise. His, it's funny that you mentioned that. That's literally one of my favorite textbooks that uh, is on my shelf. Andre Feldman actually recommended it to me. Um, but, <laughs> you know, starting out, it's it's not, it's, there's a lot of density, like in the beginning talking about, I don't know which, which um, uh, edition you have, but free energy and gives free energy model and exergonic and all these different, it's a very, I like it, like in terms of a textbook, if, you know, I was going to recommend, I'm sure you'd probably recommend it to, to folks as well. It's a very complete um, textbook. Like the one I have, the new one has two volumes um, and they're, they're loaded with every page is loaded with, with efficient information. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not completely through it yet, uh, or actually I have a long way to go still, but yeah, but yeah, I, I do think it's great. Yeah, absolutely great. I can say that already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, th that's interesting. And I, it's funny because I think one thing that I've noticed through coaches that have built up some, some good experiences, a lot of times there's kind of a cycle of coming back to the basics and understanding the basics at a, at a deeper level. I've seen, it's not with every coach, but I, I definitely do take into account that I've, I've picked that out with a few people talking about going back to the basics. Um, some, some very well experienced coaches out there. And I think it kind of serves at the right time. Cause I feel like if you, yes, it's great to have a understanding of physiology in the beginning, but I think it can really confuse a lot of, uh, you know, young coaches and definitely take away from building coaching experience good coaching experience and good um decision making like yes it is inherently going to en enhance the ability to understand this is why we're doing this amount of aerobic training versus you know some of these higher thresholds works versus vo2 max like it's good to, to understand that but the actual cell physiology i believe it kind of comes back at the right time for a lot of people where it's like okay yes yeah. now it's now it's really going to be even more useful having the experiences that i've already had um yeah 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 so I you're not agree. Completely agree. yeah you're not in survival mode trying to understand the you know lactate shuttle transporters and anyways yeah um so one interesting question that i've never really asked anyone before but i'd be really interested to hear your take on this because um you know coming from where you're coming from if you were to coach yourself as a six-year-old athlete, um, knowing what you know about yourself and knowing your kind of tendencies, knowing um, your strengths, your weaknesses, how would you intervene as a coach to create the best possible version of yourself at the age of 30 in, in, in the sport of triathlon? Like, What are some of the things that you know you would have pulled the trigger on maybe a little bit earlier, a little bit later, maybe approached yourself and, and trying to instill some philosophy behind certain training models and certain training concepts. What are some of the things that you would um, do to try and get the best of your, out of yourself? Um, 
by 30. Uh, yeah, this is very interesting, uh, in particular because I read the question wrong, so I didn't read the my, about myself part, so I just oh, okay. picked a generic example. But okay. that's fine, I will answer I, I will answer it as you asked the question. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think definitely the first thing I would do, and this is something that I did write down for a generic example as well, is just instilling the importance of and educating myself about uh, the importance of enjoying the process and about consistency and how that uh, means that, you know, I have to have as a main objective to stay healthy and stay injury-free. Uh, so, and then taking the steps to um, to make sure that I do that. And, and I mean, that would definitely mean less running than I did in my uh, late teens and especially early 20s, where I, yeah, just built up because I was enjoying the running, and but then inevitably I got I got injured. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if I if I started as as a sixteen year old um, in triathlon, I mean I still think that at a, at a certain point you you have to have like a really good amount of talent to get to that level. But it, let's let's pretend that I have that talent. I would focus a lot on skills uh, in those early years, and mm-hmm. and also speed and power, but but not necessarily in terms of a lot of super like hard anaerobic workouts but doing it as part of a and ideally i would do this somewhere where i have a training group that i can train with so doing things like training races and 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 doing a lot of short races like super sprint races i think those are brilliant sprint distance races mm. and so on so so yeah focusing on skills and some speed and power and uh skills in terms of the technique of the different sports but also in terms of racing, racing skills, racing, racing a lot, but racing short races, really short races, and um, yeah, then yeah, gradually keep track of volume very carefully and, and build it very gradually, and um, and also, I mean, I would definitely think that you can always, as a sixteen-year-old for sure, you can definitely do things like you know threshold workouts and VO2 max workouts, but when I'm saying that I would focus on skills and speed and power, that's more like. Okay, that would be a bigger emphasis in those early years. And then gradually, as I would get older, I would transition more towards emphasizing the threshold work, especially more. Uh, when, when you have, if you have been training from 16 to, let's say, the last year of racing as an under 23, uh, then at that point, you have probably already built up a VO2 max that might be quite close to, to what it's going to reach for you if the training has been going well. So, so at that point, especially is when when I would maybe think about transitioning to doing, uh, yeah, really focusing on on doing threshold work, uh, quite um, quite quite a lot of that probably in, at least in in relative terms to what I've been doing before, and and maybe decreasing some of that other work, and and the volume would be coming up all the time to a certain level, of course, like maybe when you when you reach. 23 24 25 you're at your peak volume but but probably mm-hmm. not 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 before that and um, and and in that way you would also that would contribute to to the aerobic capacity going up but also the economy uh so so that's things like the threshold and the economy are the kind of things that help you keep improving beyond 23 well into your late 20s and early early 30s i think so so yeah i think that as an overview that's that's kind of how i how I would go about it, but definitely can't emphasize enough the importance of focusing on staying healthy and injury-free uh, as mm-hmm. something to do with so having a good physiotherapist and all of that. Mm. I really like that, especially speaking on the short races, which is is inherently genius. When I even think of track coaches having their athletes compete 
maybe a little bit more often than some would say is hey that that's not very but um you know those short like the enjoyment of competing is where it's at right that's people yeah. don't do the sport just for the training they do it because they enjoy competing and if you can inherently intertwine um training the physiology well like obviously every race is is, is training the physiology to some degree but um with especially with those shorter sprints there's much less of a um especially with triathlon because when you get out to these further distances that takes much longer time to recover from and, and disrupts the training process quite um, dramatically. So I really like that, that answer. Um, and it, it definitely like kind of ticks a lot of the boxes for um, building some type of structure for enjoyment. Um, because I think that's where a lot of athletes fall off is the enjoyment starts to decrease a little bit uh too much because yeah. of the training goals are inherently held too high um yeah and i think i mean that, that's an interesting thing that you mentioned and I, I mentioned it before with the culture question that you asked when i was 16 i, I was living in finland there there wouldn't have been uh really any sort of training group that i could that i could join to do the suck type of you know organic uh workouts where you just go out and ride your bike uh, learn to ride in a group, learn to corner well, because you follow the fastest fastest person and they know how to corner well and those sorts of things. You have to sprint up the hill, short, punchy hills and so on, so you develop some speed and power there. There just wasn't, there There just isn't that that type of environment for young triathletes there to develop. Here, on the other hand, in Portugal, there is that environment. There's lots of training groups for young athletes. So, so I think that you, I mean, I know it's a hypothetical question, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I think it's definitely a question where, if somebody is thinking about that for themselves, uh, then I, I think that that group is really important, not because it's always the optimal training, but for the, uh, the enjoyment, but also just immersion is an important aspect of learning a lot of different skills. So, so I think, mm. I think you have to, sometimes you have to be a bit careful with the group training because sometimes it's set to the fastest person in the group or something like that. And it's not always, um, individualized but it doesn't always have to be super individualized especially not at that age you're basically building up um, to be able to train really well once you're 23 24 25 so uh, so so yeah i think that that group environment is another important aspect of of it if you're looking at long-term athlete development from a kind of youth and junior um from the youth and junior years in well into your senior years yeah that's funny because it brought up things in my head some thoughts and memories of you know you have this transition when you exit for for most individuals unless you're a professional you have this transition where you are spending a lot of time around your teammates whether that's in sport teams at school or you're hanging out with them after school and you have this environment that you don't really realize um the value of right it's just kind of ingrained with your everyday life um and then you get older and then it's like oh it's a group ride and then it turns into a group ride less often. And then it's like, you know, long stretches of time training alone. And you forget, especially with endurance sport, you forget a lot of the times how much that team environment drives intrinsic motivation and drives um, the ability to go out and suffer um, and enjoy yeah. suffering. And we, we know that from, you know, hot spots um, different places of the world where athletes excel at certain sports because 
inherently everything is tied into that sport. The culture is tied into that sport. So it's much easier to suffer for something that um, you're tied to on a, on a characteristic level. Right. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, moving off, moving off of that, um, I'd like to ask you essentially, how do you start shrinking the black box? Like you talked about, you know, experimenting with some lactate with swimming. Um, but I know you mentioned earlier about critical power with your athletes. Um, how do you go about shrinking that black box and understanding what am I going to use for intervention um, with the athlete? What do I think is this is what the athlete needs? Um, how do you go about that? Do you test often um, with certain athletes? Do you you kind of have a regular schedule where you do testing with athletes? What is it that you use? Maybe it's not um, as much testing. Maybe it's just uh, monitoring their efforts and training. Um, a little bit more and testing more sporadically what what is it that you use um yeah well it's it depends <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh i think it always comes down to uh what, what are the athletes goals and uh and then okay comparing where they are currently with mm -hmm. where they want to go so so where their goals are and uh and doing a gap analysis and and then we can figure out that okay so so if you have you know just a one minute deficit on the swim but you have a 15 minute deficit on the bike and a 30 minute deficit on the on the run in your gap analysis so comparing your goals to where you currently are so where you currently are in this context means okay what did you do in your last race uh mm -hmm. because we're looking at the racing goal here then in that context i would say okay well let's just keep the swimming as it is for now we don't need to focus prioritize that very much because you have bigger fishes to fry and that's mm -hmm. the bike and the run and and the, and they are probably very connected if you have a 30 minute improvement again on the run they don't have to be necessarily but in Ironman especially they often are so if you get fitter on the bike then it's easier to run closer to your potential uh off the mm -hmm. bike as well so so then then you start thinking about okay well how much first of all how much power do you need to even to to bike 15 minutes faster and or can you can you gain that time somehow through aerodynamical uh improvements and uh and you you start to consider your options and maybe it's a combination of the two and then on the run you also think about well okay can we maybe improve your bike do you have more room to grow on the bike so we improve your bike so much that uh that you can bike at a lower percentage uh, of, of of what you could actually be doing of your threshold or via 2 max and and then hitting the run goal will be easier even if you don't necessarily improve improve your run fitness because you'll just get there with more left in the tank you might you might also look at nutrition hydration and all of these things so so really it's a long it's a long checklist of things that you that you have to go through of what are the things that you really really need to work on and then you start to prioritize and obviously you can't work on everything but you have to kind of choose two three four things maybe that you work on and and then uh, in many cases uh, you don't necessarily need any specific testing because there is enough data there is the power duration curve and and uh, mm -hmm. just information from races that the effort has done that you might not need specific um if, mm -hmm. for example if i want to prescribe a threshold workout i know close enough where it is that i don't necessarily need to to do a test to find out exactly where it is because mm -hmm. i don't think it's that important uh, but in some cases uh it is useful uh and uh and, and then you do whatever testing you need to you might for example sometimes not be quite sure okay so 
uh, may, sometimes you might need to know how at what percentage of VO2 max are you actually operating? Like, is there even room to improve your threshold, or do we need to improve your VO2 max? And in that case, yeah, you need to go and measure your VO2 max. So, so, so it it, it always depends. But for me, it always comes down to doing a gap analysis. Uh, mm. Where does the athlete want to go? Where are they now? And then you figure out what are the the main priorities to work on, and then how do we work on them? So that's kind of the uh, the operation order for for the process. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's uh, as an overview. That's that's what I do. Mm. I like that. Um, yeah, because it, it it you know every coach has their process, and you know depending on who the coach is, whether they're um, you know like a university coach, it's just kind of. A lot of times, okay, we're training all as a group, right? Because that's kind of the the resources that are available. And then you'll see some that kind of do specific, like whether it's um, anaerobic speed reserve, you know, kind of splitting the athletes up into different groups, um, trying to understand some basic kind of physiological preferences, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I like hearing um, everyone's process because a lot of them are similar but there's specific things about them that are unique and maybe um, maybe more useful for certain coaches because you know you see on the other side where people get very heavy on the testing, analyzing testing, and yes, critical power. Some of these things are easy to measure, but you also have to take into account like you know how are you going to use these things in the training, which carrying over testing data isn't always as clean as everyone thinks it is because not every test goes as planned. Um, so, you know, testing can be disruptive, especially with athletes that aren't used to it. Um, and they're not used to, you know, certain things surrounding testing. And it's nice when, you know, you have the ability and the experience and, and things like this to just kind of look at an athlete um, and understand like, okay, this is where they're sitting at roughly for this. This is where they're sitting at for this. Okay. I've got a good idea here. It's much more efficient and it can be, um, even more effective, I think, because you're focusing, um, on the things that you need to be focusing on. Anyways, that was kind of a long way to, to, of saying I like it, but, um, um, so one of the things that I want to ask is if you could have any piece of technology um because how i kind of usually frame this question because i've asked it before um is we most athletes use heart rate right this is kind of something that's been well adopted in the community some heart rate monitors are just less accurate and less useful but regardless of that it's kind of been around for a while now it's kind of here to stay if you could have another piece of technology whether it's from the field of exercise physiology maybe it's from medical diagnostics it could be anything it could be a functional mri i don't know. like people have crazy answers maybe it's software maybe it's a specific type of software that can um using ai could detect certain things in the athlete what would that technology be why would you choose that piece of technology like for example having a vo2 master right every athlete could have a vo2 master you know something that is like thirty thousand dollars and obviously the vo2 master is not the quality data that you're getting from a parvo or or um you know some of these these other um gold standards but what is something that you would use along with heart rate that you would uh incorporate 
Okay, so to clarify the question, uh, I only have heart rate. I don't have power or pace, or do I have these? No, you have pace? everything that you have. Awesome. So you have okay. everything that you would normally yeah. use with athletes, but you could add another piece to that. Right. And, and another clarification question, does this thing have to exist uh, or can I dream up something? It stays within the realm of technology. So what I tell people okay. is you could use something like um, MRS or, or, or something like that's, that's in the field already. Um, yeah. But you can compact it and, and commercialize it essentially. Right. Yeah. Well, I, because I had uh, as a, which, yeah, it it might be it might be possible in the future. I did write that a continuous non-invasive lactate measurement mm -hmm. would be quite interesting to have. Um, but if if it but for something that exists now, actually, if all of my athletes had a lactate meter and a capacity to test themselves themselves, mm -hmm. then that that wouldn't be uh, too shabby. So so I might go with that. But I did actually as a dark horse, I did note down as you say uh, MRS for identifying. A muscle fiber typology. I do think that that's uh, that's really cool technology. And uh, well, I used to work uh, in MRI actually in in R and D, okay. so so I'm quite interested in the field, interested in the field. But uh, but actually, I think that just the, the the profiling capacity that this new technology, so finding out whether an athlete is more slow twitch or like their muscle fiber composition composition between fast twitch and slow twitch fibers, could actually have uh, have a uh, a decent impact on training decisions and and therefore training response as well so so i think i mean that's just it's not the one that i would choose first but mm -hmm. but it's a very cool piece of technology that i just had to mention yeah yeah no i i'm on the same page that is my kind of pick um i mean it is being used i've heard with several um different professional sporting teams now um to some degree but um yeah, it is. I think that would yield a a ton of of useful information surrounding um, response and, and and for training intervention. But on the um, topic of continuous lactate monitors, there's actually because I've asked this question before. There's a couple people that have mentioned that, um, and I was talking to Mike T. Nelson, and he uh, made me aware that um, Abbott, so that makes the freestyle blood glucose monitor. They are coming out with a continuous lactate monitor in the near future, and I think it also is going to um, uh, detect uh, continuous ketone, blood glucose, and alcohol and lactate. Um, so all four of those, and I think he said they're fairly close. I can't remember. I didn't look exactly on the timeline for release. I think it was in the near future. They said whatever that means, but yeah. I, I'll be interested, especially when it becomes. Um, like applicable for athletes because you know cgms like a lot of them aren't really meant for the abuse that no. <laughs> athletes are putting them under so. no yeah especially swimming is the hard one i found i i've tried them and yeah it was it was difficult yeah so getting into some of the final questions here that that i'm interested to hear um from your perspective is what is a preconceived notion large um that led to kind of a large failure in your in your whether it could be coaching it could be just in and in, in learning um whether it was school uh, your education but probably be interesting to hear more towards um you know coaching is what is a preconceived notion or an incorrect hypothesis that you've learned a great deal from in that failure and and what was kind of the 
the thinking and the bias that led to that? Um, and how did you realize you were off course? How did you realize that you were, um, you know, not, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. In, in my early coaching days, uh, I think that pacing, helping athletes with, with goal paces for their races is something that sometimes just did not go well. Uh, mm. so for example, the pace was way too hard or, or some, sometimes less often it was, it was not quite hard enough, but, mm -hmm. uh, but more often it was a, a pace that the athlete couldn't actually sustain for the race. And, and I mean, there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, um, uh, thinking about, okay, so what percentage of threshold can, can I hold for a race? And what do other people say that you should be able to hold for a race of a certain distance, like an Olympic distance race? And what have I seen other my athletes do, but they, but they might be at the same fitness level or they might be at the same fitness level, but just have more endurance, which this current athlete does not have. So, so I would say that that's one thing that, uh, that I've found that I sometimes, uh, definitely failed with, uh, giving incorrect pacing, uh, pacing advice to, to athletes that then backfired on them. And, uh, yeah, nowadays I have a different, a different approach to, to pacing, basically kind of race simulation workouts to, to figure out what the pace is. So, so that's, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a big one that I, that came to mind. Mm, that was a good one. And I think, uh, it's probably one that many of coaches have ran into or are struggling with because um, pacing is yeah 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 and and, and a lot of self coach athletes I think as well could could learn from this because when you, you a lot of athletes and I know because I've done this you you go you Google okay what percentage of FTP should I hold for an <laughs> Olympic distance race or a seven yeah. three and then you see and those the numbers that you see in the first search results on Google. I would say for a lot of athletes, they are good for for pretty advanced athletes, pretty strong athletes that mm -hmm. also have trained adequately for the distance and have a really good base of fitness. But mm -hmm. uh, but many athletes don't ful fulfill all of those criteria, so should have more conservative pacing targets than the ones you you find in the first results on Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you're dealing with like age groupers, because the variance is so yeah. large. Um, yeah, it, it can be very difficult to to take broad spectrum ideas around pacing. Another thing that, uh, you know, I think you kind of alluded to it because you talked about using critical power. Um, what is the one kind of test that you would, you know, if you solely could only use one test, you did speak on race simulation, like within workouts or time trials um, too as well. But if you can only use one type of test with your athletes for the next three to five years, um, what would that be? Would that be critical power? Would that be just kind of time trialing? I mean, they are kind of mixed in the same thing, but maybe it would be a lactate test. Maybe it would be a, a ramp test, uh, you know, whatever it is. It could be um, even a diagnostic test, like like I said, lactate or, or NEARS or something. I don't know, whatever whatever it is that you think is, is useful um, and why yeah. would you choose that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess it depends a little bit on the athlete um but I, I would say probably you know uh, just a time trial or you know being able to use time trials and then you can through that you can build a power duration curve and, and critical power and so on mm -hmm. that would be the main one uh on the other hand if if 
if I were to be a bit cheeky, then I would say that well, I can prescribe any workouts I I like, right? So I can I can actually I can prescribe just all out efforts in workouts, so then I can <laughs> get my my power duration curve without calling it a test and yeah. and get critical power for that as well. So then yeah. I can add maybe add a sec- second test, and and in that case, if if I were allowed to do that, it would probably be uh, a lactate test uh, just for identifying LT one. So I I would I don't care for LT two particularly or mm-hmm. uh, and MLSS testing is just too. Uh, uh, too complex too time consuming so so it's for lactate for me is mostly useful for finding LT1 is -hmm. the main lactate testing objective that I see but and and I uh, I mean a lot of my athletes don't use it because it's just not necessary if you have a if if you have a good sense of your your own pacing then and you are relatively well trained then it's easy enough to to do the easy training easy enough which is one of the main reasons i think to do like the testing but it, there's definitely in some cases when you want to actually train closer to that point there are some scenarios where i do find it very useful to know it more more exactly so so yeah maybe i would say that well i could just do the time trials as part of the athlete's normal training so it's not formal testing and then and then i would add lactate test for finding lt1 as the the diagnostics to the diagnostics tool if that makes sense no i like that answer and i think that's just a fairly useful system like even um like i said if you could only use one i mean that that in itself i think you know i was speaking to phil skiba on this is like you know it's such a useful model because like you said you can incorporate it into athletes workouts and athletes do like seeing their five minute power they like seeing these things so it's not as um much of of the pulling teeth process of, you know, the classical 20 minute uh, FTP test. And even though they, they're different, but, or, or some of these ramp tests, but yeah, you're, you're right. It is. Um, I find, I find those, those models useful because not only are they just testing, they're also a, they're, they're training as well. Like people forget yeah. that testing and training aren't really that separated as much as people like to think like, Oh, it disrupts training, but um that's still physiological adaptation that you're you're gaining yeah um, yeah so all right so last question here is what are some areas of interest outside of exercise physiology sport performance coaching triathlon um maybe it's maybe it's a passion maybe it's um you know an expertise or something that you spend a lot of time delving into um what is an area outside that you 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 spend a lot of of effort or time or passionate about yeah um well so so this is five years ago but so i'm no mm-hmm. longer an expert but i i was really involved in medical devices so both mri as uh-huh. i mentioned but also transcranial direct current stimulation which is interesting because there's a lot of nice. not a lot but there is some sports science with the potential effects of tdcs on mm-hmm performance and if you have read alex Hutchinson's endure which uh, a lot of people have then they talk a lot about tdcs there but yeah we never use it for sports performance or i did in the lab uh, but <laughs> for myself yeah. but yeah our purpose was medical devices so so i used to be into into that field and i know a fair amount in in there um but uh, and i enjoyed it even though i wouldn't say i was you know super passionate about about it like i am endurance sports um but yeah, I guess right now, like I don't have any other areas of expertise, but I do have other interests. Like I still follow uh, English uh, football, Premier League, uh, but yeah. yeah, that's just, it's not something I, I do very, you know, 
very purposefully or anything. It's just yeah. a, a, a pastime. And then I guess the one other thing is that I'm, I really like audiobooks. And right now I'm interested in learning more about how, how the world works. So I've been, I've been reading some, some audiobooks in the kind of geopolitics realm mm. recently. And, and that's something I'm really enjoying. Again, definitely not an expert, but just something yeah. that I'm enjoying doing. Yeah, those are all interesting. And it's funny, you're talking about the medical devices. I, I haven't ever really stated this out loud to many people, but it'll be cool. Um, I was one of those those kids that was uh, uh, constructing my own uh, TDCS device out of nine volt batteries oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, when I was younger, because I thought I was going to get, I mean, inherently, yes, there's a placebo effect with it. But um, yeah, I, I obviously do not recommend this uh this practice for anyone out there but uh it was a cool experimentation process and it was also really cool because it stimulated a lot of learning off of that and and uh yeah that's funny that you're into that but um yeah no, those were good answers i think um yeah the, the 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 geopolitics and all those things it's it's a very nice intellectual endeavor because to grasp everything in that field you don't feel the pressure the same pressure to accumulate the knowledge as you would in some other fields where it's it's kind of easier to consume more of the information out there. So you kind of feel pressure. Um, for me, anyways, I don't know. This is how I feel. Like like you said, it's like it's hard to be an expert in geopolitics because it really depends on what type of, of areas you're you're really kind of intimate with and 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 stuff like that. So um yeah, those are all great. So um folks can find you your 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 podcast on 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 pretty much anywhere that you get podcasts at triathlon show. Um, also I'll link your, your website and your social media, um, in the, uh, show notes. So folks can find you there, but, uh, yeah, really, really appreciate you taking the time today, Michael. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. It was a great, great chat. So thank, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks. We'll catch you later folks. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where I'll have links to Matthew's website and Instagram as well as to the Oxidative Potential podcast which is co-hosted by Matthew and he and Phil Batterson who is uh, the other host of the podcast. I will also try to remember which resources, podcast episodes and so on we might have mentioned in this interview. Uh, usually when I interview someone I, I try to take notes whenever something is mentioned that should be put in the show notes later. So I have a I just a, a paper with notes about that but I didn't think to do it this time around when I was being interviewed but uh, I do have a couple of relevant links that I'll put in there and uh, if there's something we mentioned that you can't find feel free to email me and uh, I'll see if I can find it for you uh, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. Whether you are just getting into triathlon, trying to qualify for a world championship event, or even want to race professionally, we have experience in all of those scenarios and would love to discuss further around if and how we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day -day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Zenate. Use the Zenate swim trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the swim trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. 
And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep trading smart and keep loving crafting.